Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. Good afternoon. Uh, if that's when you're listening, I never know when you're listening. Uh, welcome to The Scramble. Once again, just a review for you people on Mondays. Uh, typically, if we can, uh, we come back from the weekend uh, with a show that's based on news that broke over the weekend or uh, that allows us to update things, including, of course, the insane presidential campaign we are involved in. Uh, that will be the subject later on in the show. We have a guest coming in in the second segment for that. And then in the third segment, and bear this in mind, uh, if you're listening here in the afternoon, we'll be taking phone calls. Uh, 860-275-7266. Don't call now. We're not taking phone calls yet. But for the final segment of the show, I do want to open up the phone lines and talk to you, in particular about some of the themes that are emerging in this campaign. I think in particular, one of the things that I'm interested in is, uh, as Donald Trump kind of lurches into this King Lear uh, s- a section of his campaign, he seems to be laying the groundwork for some thoughts about the illegitimacy of some presumed outcome uh, because uh, the election was rigged in some ways, that there were deficiencies at the polls, uh, because the media was against him uh, because of this, because of that. Uh, and that ultimately also, if you listen to the rhetoric that he uses in characterizing his opponent, Hillary Clinton, and, I mean, you know, the caveat here is that politics is never, as they say, beanbag, uh, but uh, the constant refrain of crooked Hillary and the suggestion that she herself is not really a legitimate candidate. So where does that leave us? Uh, imagine that he loses. Uh, where are we uh, as we head into 2017? Uh, what kind of alienation from the results of the election could we expect from the public? Uh, I want to talk to you about that a little bit, uh, as well as other things that may have crossed your mind about that. But we're not beginning there. Uh, we're beginning in Wisconsin. Uh, where, in fact, um, several news stories of interest have been taking place over the weekend. Um, The first uh, is the overturning of the conviction of a young man who many people encountered in the Netflix documentary Making a Murderer, which is the story uh, of a defendant named Stephen Avery uh, and a victim named Teresa Halbach uh, in a murder case. Uh, Avery often gets called the Stephen Avery case uh, because he was found guilty of this murder and he'd already um, had uh, an imprisonment, an imprisonment that had also been overturned uh, and it was suing some of the officials connected to that uh, imprisonment. There was sort of a working hypothesis advanced in this Netflix documentary that maybe some of those people who were being sued or at least agents of people being uh, sued, public officials uh, and law enforcement officials being sued, had an interest in seeing him convicted of this other case of this other murder. And it kind of piece of collateral damage to all that was a young man named Brendan Dassey. He was about 17 years old uh, at the time of the case. Uh, he confessed in a way that anybody who has watched uh, the confession, we'll play it for you in just a second, uh, could not be entirely comfortable with. Uh, to say that he re- re- received ineffective assistance of counsel it would be an understatement. Uh, anyway, his conviction has been overturned. Uh, we're going to tell you a little bit more about that. And then we'll also talk uh, about what's happening in Milwaukee right now. I'm sure everybody followed the, the 
unrest or riots, really, in Milwaukee following a police shooting. Uh, so to join us and to help us do all that is Tom Kircher. Uh, he is PolitiFact Wisconsin reporter at the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel, uh, and he covered the Stephen Avery case for the Journal Sentinel. And those of you who watched the Netflix documentary may even remember seeing him. He does appear uh, in that documentary. So first of all, welcome to our show, uh, Tom. Hey, good to be here. Thanks. So um, maybe let's begin with the Brendan Dassey case. So he's the nephew uh, of Stephen Avery, the principal defendant in this case. Uh, a higher court has overturned his conviction. They didn't say he was innocent, right? They said that there was a defect in that infamous confession. Right. Uh, this wasn't a higher court in the sense of an appeal. This was a different sort of tack. Uh, um, he was prosecuted in state court. Mm-hmm. But the uh, the federal appeal he made is called a uh, habeas petition, and it argued that his constitutional rights were violated because of the way he was interrogated. And what the federal judge in Milwaukee ruled on Friday, um, again, had nothing to do with whether Dassey is guilty or not guilty of the crime. But the judge found that, in fact, his constitutional rights were violated uh, because of the way he was interrogated, uh, made his confession involuntary. Um we should say a little bit more about uh, who he is, a very young man at the time and a man who um, has, I think, what they sometimes call borderline intellectual deficiencies, right? A guy who maybe uh, may not have been fully uh, equipped to participate, at least fully, in his own defense. Yeah, I think unsophisticated is a fair word. He was 16 years old. He mostly took general education classes in high school, but he also took some special ed classes uh, had no prior criminal history, and so you know, it was very new, certainly to the process of being questioned by some veteran investigators. Um, we're going to hear just a little bit of that uh, questioning. Uh, you're going to hear these investigators trying to get Brendan Nassie to talk about what he and his uncle Stephen Avery had done uh, to Teresa Halbach's head. Come on. Something with the head. Brendan? What else did you guys do? Come on. What he made you do, Brendan, we know he made you do something else. What was it? What was it? We have the evidence, Brendan. We just need you to, to be honest with us. That he cut off her hair. He cut off her hair. Okay, what else? What else was done to her head? That he punched her. What else? Extremely, extremely important you tell us this. For us to believe you. We know, we just need you to tell us. That's all I can remember. All right, I'm just going to come out and ask you, who shot her in the head? He did. Why didn't you tell us that? Because I couldn't think of it. 
So, Tom Kircher, one of the things that's at issue here is uh, they seem to initially try to withhold a piece of information to see whether Brendan Dassey uh, has it, whether he knows it or not. Uh, it's a really basic piece of information uh, about the fact that she was shot in the head, uh, and, and eventually they supply it to him. Was that part of the thing that the—I don't know how specific U.S. Magistrate Judge uh, William E. Duffin was in saying that the, con- the confession was unconstitutional and coerced. Yeah, he did uh, say that it was sort of the totality uh, of the different interrogations, um, the times like like the one you just played where it appeared that the investigators were uh, feeding facts to Dassey, so to speak, or in other cases suggesting to him that if he just told the truth, he would be fine. Um, and it, the judge made it clear that it was not any one question or one session, but the, the entirety of the interrogations. So what happens now is that uh, they have, I guess, 90 days to either release him or start retrial proceedings. Do you have a sense of how this is likely to play out over the next 90 days? We don't have a strong sense yet. You know, it was a 91-page ruling. It was issued Friday afternoon. Uh, And I think it's fair to say the attorneys on both sides for for Brendan and for uh, the state, you know, would want to review it closely before making a decision. Before the decision came out, though, I had spoken to a number of uh, attorneys familiar with the case. Their best guess was that whichever way the federal judge ruled, they would expect one side or the other to appeal, and that ultimately a decision would come from the federal appeals court in Chicago some months or more down the line, but uh, too early to say right now. Yeah, I mean, one of the interesting moves that might be making may, might be made under those circumstances, either while waiting for an appeal or if the state is considering a, a retrial, is uh, I mean, if he if he has effective counsel this time, which I presume he he now does, I mean, it might make sense for him to get out on bail too. I mean, I I don't know if that's been discussed or not, but it seems that now having had his conviction overturned because of a faulty conviction uh, confession, he'd have a better argument for a release on bail. Uh, there is that possibility. That's right. Um, so, um, so we don't know whether the state's going to retry. Probably it will go uh, up the appeals um, ladder. Um, th- this decision didn't address probably the thing that freaked out um, uh, Netflix viewers the most. And obviously, watching a Netflix documentary is not the same thing as doing what you did, which is watch the whole tr- whole trial. Uh, but people watching the Netflix documentary saw things that weren't seen at trial too, um, and and watching the the scene in which the court-appointed lawyer uh, for for Brendan Dassey. And, and I, as I recall it, this kind of um, investigator also who was working with the lawyer basically begin this process, you know, this process, process that we ordinarily assume that law enforcement will be engaged in, that police and prosecutors will be engaged in. But instead, really, it's the defense team, team that begins this process of breaking this young man down and persuading him um, either that he did it or the best thing that he could possibly do is is say. That, that he was involved. But this, the court decision doesn't really address that part, right? Uh, it does. Uh, basically, it says for legal reasons, um, Brendan Dassey didn't have a case on that particular account. So the, the federal habeas petition that was decided on Friday made two claims. One of them had to do with uh, Brendan Dassey's lawyer. The judge ruled that for legal reasons, uh, he, you know, Dassey would not prevail on that argument, but you know the judge obviously ruled on the other part of the case, which is that uh, you know the interrogations were unfair, unconstitutional, and that's why he uh, uh, granted in Dassey's favor. 
Were you surprised watching the documentary? And I know you kind of live tweeted your own watching of the documentary. Were you surprised later when you saw that scene when, when in fact, the people who uh, were nominally defending this guy seemed to be working? And not, not that that doesn't happen sometimes, but, but in the case of a guy who maybe has some impairments or maybe isn't able even to understand what's happening, that they were working so hard to get him in this direction uh, as opposed to maybe seeking some kind of exoneration. You're speaking now of, of Heaven's uh, own attorney. Yeah, Kaczynski and, right. and the investigator, yeah. Right. Um, yeah, I think that was, it's fair to say, that the most surprising, particularly to attorneys or, or even just you know regular viewers of making a murder. Uh, you would anticipate that an attorney who's representing you or the investigator who's working for that attorney would be you know on your side, so to speak. And, and I think it's important to note that Len Kaczynski, that first lawyer, that was his point of view, was that uh, he could get the best deal for Brendan Dassey, so to speak, uh, if there were admissions and he could work out a, a plea bargain that would expose Dassey to a shorter time in prison. But, you know, again, it, it, it certainly was shocking to a lot of people to see the investigator for Dassey's own lawyer pressing him to confess. Um, so, uh, first of all, a couple of more questions. One of them is, how much does this decision help the other defendant, Stephen Avery? Uh, obviously, their their trials were separate, but their fates are somewhat connected. Yeah, there's no direct or immediate impact for Stephen Avery. You know, Brendan Dassey, you know, brought the case in federal court strictly based on you know whether his constitutional rights were violated. Uh, it didn't have didn't go to whether he was guilty or not guilty or the facts of the case. So, so there wouldn't be any direct impact on Avery. Um, uh, at the same time, you know, it's a 91-page decision issued only a couple days ago, and, and I think the lawyers for for Dassey, for Avery, for the state, you know, will pour over it pretty closely. And whether there's a kernel or two in there that uh, might affect Avery, you know, that remains to be seen. Um, uh, obviously, as you say, this is early, early on the heels anyway of the, the federal court decision. But I mean, one of the questions I'm sure a lot of people have, given the nature of this decision, and it's presuming that it, it proceeds through an appeals process with the same results, is, you know, the Brendan Dassey has some options that closely resemble those of his uncle prior to this whole murder case. His uncle was in the process of suing the county and a whole bunch of other people uh, connected with uh, an unlawful imprisonment. Uh, Brendan Dassey could conceivably do this if he could find uh, a lawyer willing to engage in, in a pretty lengthy process. He could also maybe even sue the people who allegedly represented him the first time around. Is there even any whisper about something like that happening, or is it just too early? Yeah, I would say too early. I, I think it, your question's a good one, though. I, I, you know, a lot of people would uh, I think draw that conclusion that you know they wonder if there would be that legal option for him, and I think because we're you know really just at the start of the process, we don't even know how it's going to shake out. You know, will the federal judge's decision be upheld or not? Uh, you know, we're sort of a long way down the road uh, potentially from that, unless the state would decide you know here in the coming weeks just to drop the case. But uh, pretty early at this stage just to map out what might happen next. All right, let's switch tracks for a second here, and I just want to ask you a few brief questions about what's been happening in Milwaukee for the last two nights. Uh, obviously, this is all in reaction to the, the shooting uh, of a suspect. 
uh, an African-American suspect uh, who was, we are told, armed. Um, but what's been happening in Milwaukee, it seems to be more than just one shooting. And obviously it's very hard to, in any you know, surefire way, know why people are rioting. But does, does this seem as though it's sort of the result of, of a lot of things building up? I know that in 2014 there was another shooting and that Chief, uh, uh, Chief Flynn called for a Justice Department investigation. Are, are there all kinds of things boiling up into this moment in Milwaukee? Yeah, I think Milwaukee, you know, shares the qualities of a lot of cities with big urban centers where there are uh, pockets of uh, poverty and more crime and, you know, other social problems. And, I, you know, that have been um, in place for, for a number of years. And, I, you know, there certainly was in in, unrest in that part of the city prior to this. But, but it sort of all came together in a uh, Friday night, Saturday morning, there were actually five homicides, which is a huge number in a short period of time for Milwaukee. And Saturday afternoon, uh, police pull over a car that uh, they said was uh, looked suspicious, and um, uh, two men who were in the car ran, and one of them was, was fatally shot by a police officer. Again, that was Saturday afternoon, and then by Saturday night, we had a lot of violence in that the neighborhood where the, the fatal shooting occurred. Um, six businesses set on fire, uh, several police officers injured, um, and then uh, some of that continued again Sunday night. So, um, you know, definitely a tense time here and not something that we've seen before, at least not in many years. Um, those of us who don't live in Wisconsin uh, met this summer, just a few weeks ago, for the first time on television, Sheriff David Clark, uh, who is one who was the sheriff from Milwaukee County. Um, he appeared at the Re- Republican National Convention. Um, with, he's African American, but he had a lot of very tough talk uh, about the Black Lives Matter movement. He came across as a guy who maybe not might not be the most soothing presence in a situation like this. He seemed very opposed to uh, the Black Lives Matter movement, which he called anarchy. Um, uh, what's his role been over the last uh, 48 hours? Well, the Sheriff's Department really has more of a peripheral role in terms of uh, crime fighting and law enforcement. You know, these crimes occurred in the city of Milwaukee, and, and obviously there's a city of Milwaukee Police Department. Uh, the Sheriff's Department has played, you know, in, in a role in assisting, but it's by and large an operation of the Milwaukee Police Department. So how are things today? Are there is there kind of a sense that the city's calming down? There is, although, you know, we had the same sense yesterday. You know, Saturday night was very violent. Uh, Sunday during the day, you know, calmed down. But, you know, again, by Sunday night, uh, there were there was more trouble. So um, how that will play out, you know, again, today and tonight, hard to say. All right. Well, Tom Kircher, uh, thank you very much for joining us today. Uh, Tom Tom Kircher from the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel, thank you so much for uh, being with us. You bet. All right. So we're going to take a break here. We're going to come back. We're going to talk about the campaign. We always do that on Mondays anyway, it seems. Uh, We'll talk very specifically about friction between the Donald Trump campaign and the Republican National Committee.
All right. Every Monday uh, dawns with new news from the presidential campaign. Uh, there's usually too much of it. Uh, <laughs> too much of it even for us to sanely discuss. We're going to break up, uh, break off one little piece of it uh, here. Uh, also, I'm going to open up the phones in the final segment of today's show. Joining us now, Kenneth P. Vogel, uh, chief investigative reporter for Politico, uh, who's been covering a very interesting part of this story uh, based on some some back and forth, I guess it's fair to say, between the Republican National Committee and the Donald Trump campaign. Welcome to our show. Hey, it's great to be with you. So um, let's start with what gets, gets said, and then maybe we can sort of backtrack to the circumstances under which it was said, which are also kind of interesting. But but basically the, the notion, and this is coming from Renz Priebus, who's the Republican national chairman uh, or actually by, a spokesman for uh, him in a rather unusual session, the, the notion was what? That, that if things don't change, that the Republican National Committee might redirect its resources come mid-October? Yeah, that's right. Donald Trump has been relying uh, to kind of an unprecedented extent on the Republican National Committee for the the fundamental infrastructure of his campaign, the sort of basic political blocking and tackling that most candidates, by the time that they clinch a major party nomination, have built for themselves. We're talking about uh, voter data, voter targeting, people on the ground in key swing states. Uh, advertising plans, advertising reservations. Trump did none of that. He did none of that through the can for the through the primary, during which he relied on a much more sort of fly by the seat of the pants, unconventional social media uh, and you know charisma powered campaign. And then once he pivoted to the general election, or or sort of tried to pivot to the general election. Uh, he sort of threw in with the RNC and said, the RNC, you know, I, I didn't need to do any of that. This is your job. You do this for me. But as we found uh, repeatedly throughout the, the course of the last several months since he's been the, the presumptive and then uh, the official Republican Party nominee, relations haven't been that great with the RNC. It's not just that they kind of grit their teeth each time he says something incredibly impolitic and controversial that uh, not only – defies sort of, uh, you know, political norms and accepted political etiquette, but also in some cases defies Republican Party orthodoxy. But beyond that, the RNC and the RNC staffers have found that the, the campaign, Donald Trump's campaign, to the extent that it exists, very difficult to deal with. So they're getting a lot of pressure from Republican operatives and even candidates and campaigns uh, to sort of bail, pull the plug on Donald Trump, stop spending money and, spend, and, and committing resources to propping up his campaign, and to instead focus on these down-ballot races for Senate, for House, for governor that, uh, you know, are increasingly in jeopardy because of Donald Trump's unpopularity at the top of the ticket. So I want to talk a little bit about the the provenance uh, of this information. It's a rather unusual thing. Uh, they this was uh, a representative of the of the Republican National Committee meeting with I think representatives of fourteen different uh, press uh, operations, uh, publications, whatever. Fourteen members of the media, I guess, in what was supposedly an off the record session, which is not a problem for you because Politico was not invited to this session in the first place, right? Yeah, that's right. And you know, this is this is not an uncommon occurrence. You know, it's uh, we see both with the Trump campaign and with the RNC an effort to sort of punish media outlets that they deem to be unfriendly to them. And, you know, in our case, we have worked very hard to uh, you know to to cover the election right down the line. But of course, Donald Trump has you know 
uh, made it easy to write a lot of things about his campaign and his past that uh, you know are uh, w- w- you know could be construed by the campaign and by its supporters to be negative stories. And as such, we've been blacklisted from getting credentialed for campaign events. And in this particular case, the RNC brought in a bunch of reporters to kind of lay out on you know off the record what they saw as as their theory of the case as to how they have tried to help Donald Trump and what Donald Trump uh, has done to sort of undermine their assistance. And we, as well as BuzzFeed, were not among the media outlets that were invited. So we set about reporting on what was said at this off-the-record gathering that we otherwise would have been barred from reporting on if we had accepted the invitation and accepted the terms of, uh, of it being off the record. So reporters, by nature, are chatty folks, and we found some reporters who were willing to chat about what happened there, that may be them violating the terms of the uh, off-the-record agreement, but uh, we didn't name them, so uh, we felt comfortable in using this information in a way that we thought was very illustrative of what the RNC was thinking and is something different from what they would say on the record and as such is even more valuable because it's more unvarnished and less spin than you typically get from a major political party engaged in knockdown, drag-out presidential election. Although cynical a soul that I am, I find myself wondering uh, if I were Rince Priebus, uh, the head of the RNC, if I were uh, other officials within the Republican establishment, and I wanted to put this message out, A, to reassure Republicans and other people that, yes, we were working on this, we're doing anything we can. And one of the things I think that was reported uh, was that Rince Priebus is on the phone to Trump five to six times a day sometimes trying to get him back on track. If I wanted to get that message out and the message out that, you know, if necessary, we will cut this guy loose and take care of, you know, Rob Portman and Marco Rubio and Pat Toomey and Kelly Ayotte and whoever else down ticket is in trouble. And if I wanted also to try to see if I could do one more thing to get Trump's attention since nothing else seems to work, you know, I mean, I'd have an off-the-record session with 14 reporters. I wouldn't invite Politico. I would assume that one of the one or more of those reporters would then talk to Politico so that this thing would get out, but it would get out in a way w- in which I could then maybe sort of plausibly deny it afterwards, which is in fact what they've done. I mean, do you feel at all as though this is sort of part of their strategy to get this message out to a whole bunch of people so that nobody thinks that they're just letting Trump run wild like some rabid dog? Oh, yeah, absolutely. You don't even have to go through that sort of, you know, uh, whisper down the lane type of scenario to see that as something that they were doing, you know, rather, uh, you know, rather, rather transparently, although uh, opaquely transparently since it was off the record. But, you know, what they wanted, and again, it's not uncommon for, for uh, organizations, political organizations, campaigns, party committees, PACs to have sessions like this. And what they want is for that, uh, you know, their, the sentiments that they express in these, in these sessions to find their way into reporters' Um, sort of presentation of the situation without their fingerprints on it. They want reporters, it's more powerful that for them, if reporters write this story and just write flat out, you know, the, the Republican National Committee has done more to support uh, Donald Trump's campaign than it did to support Mitt Romney's campaign in 2012 or John McCain's campaign in 2008. Kudos to the Republican Party for building this massive infrastructure and shame on Donald Trump for... Uh, for botching this this golden opportunity that they have presented, it's more. I mean, I'm, I'm sort of uh, leaning into it, exaggerating the, the way it would be presented, but it would be more effective for the RNC if reporters were to sort of write that on their own. That is the goal of having an off-the-record session like this: is to do it in a way that it comes out that the, their take comes out without their fingerprints on it, 
we just sort of, you know, cut out the middleman, or we found a middleman to cut out the sort of uh, off-the-record, uh, you know, uh, a way in which that, that uh, information is relayed and report it directly. And, and you know, uh, it may end up serving their purposes, as you suggested, but I don't think it looks good that they're gathering reporters to sort of shift the blame off the record to the Trump campaign while publicly saying they support the Trump campaign. Um, you know, I think there's some some discordance there and yet another way in which the, this, this election cycle sort of looks like chaos for the National Republican Party and for Donald Trump's campaign. We're talking to Kenneth P. Vogel, chief investigative reporter for Politico. So, you know, they they uh, put out this mid-October deadline, which, as you pointed out in your reporting, seems kind of late for a big redistribution of resources and energy, particularly because some states, critical states, uh, have early voting, which starts uh, soon, if not now. Uh, and I wonder if really what they're doing is something that's happening right now, which is that, that Priebus and the Republican leadership They've got to differentiate their brand a little bit from Trump. I mean, one of their jobs, without appearing to completely abandon Trump or cut their losses with him yet, is to say in Ohio, Rob Portman is really different from Donald Trump. This guy's not that guy. Marco Rubio, I mean, as if it needed to be said, but Marco Rubio shouldn't be judged by the standards of Donald Trump or Pat Toomey in Pennsylvania or Kelly Ayotte in New Hampshire or pick your race. This guy isn't that guy or this woman isn't that guy. These people aren't Trump. Uh, and we're not Trump. We have kind of a nominal relationship with Trump, but we want you to make different kinds of differentiations when you go to the polls in November. Is that, do you think, sort of part of what this message is? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, they have worked to uh, to sort of encourage this ticket splitting, you know, that instead, because there's, I mean, there are states that Trump wouldn't win uh, anyway. I mean, those those states that you ticked off, they happen to be, you know, key swing states. But if you look at the polling, it's not very good for Trump in those key swing states. So sort of a recognition of that reality that uh, even if even if Trump is somehow able to eke out a victory in Pennsylvania or Florida, uh, you know, it's not if it's a narrow victory, it's not it's not foretold that, uh, you know, Marco Rubio or, or Pat Toomey will ride the will ride the coattails and get the exact percentage. In fact, it's more likely that uh, they would they they could fare worse if they were if it were packaged as a ticket and so it's incumbent upon them whether they like to admit it or not to uh, try to win some Clinton voters uh, to to uh, support these Senate candidates. In fact, we see polling in Florida that suggests that Trump is hurting Marco Rubio there, uh, and and so it's it's a recognition of this uncomfortable reality where the party, despite the fact that they're publicly saying that they support Donald Trump and think that he can win are preparing for a reality that's quite different from that. Yeah, and it, it's hard to know without incredibly sophisticated polling how much of a problem Trump is in any of these races. I mean, Kelly Ayotte is way down uh, in New Hampshire, but Trump is down even lower. And you start thinking, well, if we if you cut those, you know, those sandbags off, her balloon would definitely rise uh, a little bit higher and maybe a, a lot higher. So, um, so last uh, area to get into, this all seems to fit into an Uber narrative, which we might call the breaking point storyline, that there's some sense at which, you know, Donald Trump, who constantly seems to be almost trolling the Republican establishment uh, and the RNC with remarks about not needing a ground game. He's not going to be he's not running ads, he's not spending money on ads. Uh, he might not support various candidates. But then again, he might he might stop raising money for the RNC because he doesn't like the way they talk about him. Um, so there's all of that going on. And then just this maybe just general gloom and doom sense on the other side that the guy, this guy's 
is not going to win uh, and he may wreck our down ticket, too. It feels as though the press now is looking at this breaking point storyline. It's almost how would we know if that moment came where they just thought, you know what, we just need a lot of separation from this guy. Yeah, I mean, whether whether we reach that point and we write the stories with that as the as the sort of uh, you know background uh, sentiment behind it or not, you just look at the polls. I mean, no candidate in Trump's position at this stage of the campaign has gone on to win the popular vote uh, in the modern polling era. I mean, when we're talking about the modern polling era, we're talking about since 1952 with the advent of modern polling and TV. Um, you know, we haven't seen a candidate who has, has been this far behind after the convention in, in national polling as well as, you know, key sweep state polling come back to win. So that's just reality, and, and he could buck that trend, although it doesn't appear as if he's doing anything to buck that trend. In fact, he, he appears to be pursuing the same, uh, you know, sort of uh, off-message, um, you know, rhetoric and, uh, and, and uh, campaign you know, lack of campaign uh, infrastructure in these key, key swing states that has sort of got him to this point and has him on the negative trajectory. Um, so, you know, this is just a reality, and we can, we can find different ways to write about it and parse it, and we can find different people to say different things about his chances, and we can look at all these other different metrics about ad spending and, you know, Hillary Clinton's advantage there or staffing and her advantage there. Uh, but the, the you know the numbers are the numbers, and unless we see something significant, he is headed towards a loss and potentially a, a, a rather gaping loss in November. All right, Kenneth Vogel, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, it was a pleasure. All right, Kenneth Vogel from Politico. When we come back, I don't do this very often. Some people would say I don't do it enough. Uh, I, I'm going to go to the phones. No guests, just you and me uh, and the phones. 860, you have to actually call the phones. 860-275-7266. That's 860-275-7266. I'm going to bring up some specific things when we come back. But if you have other worries and fears and things you need to get off your chest, and why wouldn't you the way the campaign has gone this summer, give us a call. 860-275-7266. <laughs> All right, we're back. <laughs> I'm just laughing at the messages being sent around on our, our computer screens by the wonderful uh, people who are putting this show together. On the board today, Betsy Kaplan. We got Kion Wolf back for, what, five, four days. Four days of Kion Wolf. Now she's traveling in Ireland. We'll get her back for real at some point. Uh, producer Jonathan McNichol is the person who put uh, the show together today. Uh, thanks to him. On the phones, we have a new intern. Her name is Caddy Tillers. T- I don't know how to say it. It's uh, uh, no, it's actually Katie Delarsky, who's like the senior executive. I don't even know what her new title is, but she's an extremely important. She's more important person here at this company than anybody else who's doing this show right now. And she's doing phones for us because we don't have any interns. Uh, And uh, we also have a Twitter account at WNPR Colin. We encourage you to look at that and to tweet at us. And we're on the Facebooks at the Colin McEnroe Show page. So go to the Colin McEnroe Show page on Facebooks and like that. Uh, we have all. I have other assignments to give you, but before I do that, I do want to say the phone lines are open. We'd love to hear what your anxieties are about the campaign, but let me just bring up, let me plant some anxieties uh, and uh, see if they resonate with you. If not, uh, I'll talk to you about your anxieties. I do feel as though over the last week or so, uh, maybe even just four days or so, we've seen kind of a pivot uh, in some of the rhetoric of Donald Trump, and he's begun to talk 
uh, more about how he might lose as opposed to the fact that he is going to win. I mean, he's not consistent about this, uh, but he's talked about how and why he might lose this campaign. And I do feel as though he's laying a certain kind of groundwork. Uh, and, and the groundwork I think that he's laying has to do with somewhat alarmingly the legitimacy of the entire scenario that's unfolding. Um, he's all along tried to suggest in a way that I think is unusual. I mean, look, all campaigns try to vilify or demonize their opponents, but I think he's gone a little further to suggest that Hillary Clinton is not a legitimate uh, opponent, that she really, you know, I mean, well, first of all, if you call her crooked Hillary every time you mention her name, uh, that's more like a schoolyard taunt than a piece of presidential campaign rhetoric still. I mean, he's, in, in fact, trying to suck out the legitimacy uh, of her actual candidacy. Uh, and therefore, obviously, as president-elect, if she were to win, she would also seem to certain Trump supporters not legitimate. Um, he's gone further to uh, he's now started to talk about how the voting will be rigged. I mean, there's you know, I think it's been suggested that statistically it's more likely that you get five Powerball numbers than that of uh, uh, a vote in an American presidential election uh, be rigged. But he's really started to gin up fears of this, that the vote itself will not be legitimate. Um, and then there's also this notion, I don't know how connected this is, but the media conspiracy to hurt him, which somehow raises questions about whether there should even be a free press or whether, in his words, you could even really call this a free press. Um, there, there are all kinds of quest questions about the basic legitimacy of the system by which candidates are chosen, are elected, uh, are covered by the press. And, and you do start to wonder what is going to happen if he does lose. Uh, some people are afraid about what will, will happen if he wins. Now people are starting to talk a little bit more about what happens if he loses. And, and you know, is he able, is he temperamentally capable of making a concession speech that sounds anything like, like a concession speech? I mean, obviously, the most high-pressure uh, concession speech uh, of the last, what, 20, 30, 40 years was the one that Al Gore had to um, give in 2000 when he might have been somewhat unsure about whether he'd really lost or not. But he ultimately had to put the pin back in the grenade, had to put the United States on some kind of fairly level course and say, look, you have a president. His name is George W. Bush. It's not Al Gore. We really need to proceed now as a nation. I just, you know, I question whether this guy can do that. Uh, and if he doesn't do it, what happens? You know, and I, I've been sort of saying, well, best case scenario, what, 30, 40 million people basically don't believe the government is legitimate. Of course, I don't really know how many people don't believe the government is legitimate right now. Donald Trump, in his previous life as a private citizen, did everything in his power to suggest that at least certain things about the existing administration weren't legitimate. Uh, he, of course, is one of the people who really led the charge to suggest that, um, that Barack Obama was not a native-born U.S. citizen and therefore really had no business being president. At all. So he's no stranger to the argument that the president that we have shouldn't be the president. But it's going to be bigger, uh, I think, and more alarming if he does it this time around. So I'd love your thoughts about this. You could maybe even just reassure me that I'm worried about nothing, that the republic is more resilient than I think it is, or you can join with me in uh, twisting your fingers and do a knot. 860 275 7266. 860-275-7266. I would quickly also say it might be interesting to talk a little bit about who could do anything about that. Like, so let's say that the scenario plays out 
as the, I've just sketched it. And by the way, I don't know that this is going to happen. I mean, all we ever have in a campaign is a snapshot of the current moment. Uh, and the snapshot of the current moment it looks a lot like that. It looks like, A, Trump is going to lose. You just heard Ken Vogel say the same thing, that all we've got are numbers. The numbers tell us uh, that he's pointing in the direction of losing. But, you know, campaigns are roller coasters. They're not straight lines. That could all change quite a bit after the first debate or after some other unforeseeable uh, event. But, you know, let's just sort of say that things do go in a more or less straight line. Then it looks like, you know, yeah, he's going to lose. He's already setting the stage for a, um, a non-concession concession speech where he basically questions the, the legitimacy of the results. I do think one group of people who are going to have to step up are Republican leaders, starting with Reince Priebus, the Republican national chairman. But yeah, the McCains and the Ryans and the McConnells and whoever else you think commands any respect at all, probably you know all the members of the Bush family, a lot of people are going to have to come forward and maybe they'll have to do like a telethon or something to, uh, to, to solidify the understanding of among the American people that, yeah, this was basically a fair election and, you know, one side lost, the other side won, and we're still a nation afterwards. But it, it could be, if he can't do it and he won't do it, that a lot of other people are going to have to do it for him. All right, I'm going to go to the phones right now. Here's Dottie in North Haven. Hi, Dottie. You're on the air. Hi. Hi, how are you? Good. Um, I just have a comment about uh, Trump's adequacy or temperament to be president of the United States, and I'm not going to... It, reiterate all the examples of why he shouldn't but to one point is that the way he comes out and just talks off the top of his head whatever comes into his mind and then takes two days to apologize for an inappropriate account um, of what he has to say as opposed to the current president um, president obama and if you think if you see the way obama speaks you may think oh my god he's talking so slow he's doing he's not saying what he really means is because as president he is constantly filtering and thinking of the appropriate way to position what he has to say in every answer as not to be taken in uh, an inappropriate manner and you know if he has a pause or he does not mention a name or he does uh, not direct something against uh, a country or a cause it's very deliberate and this is what a president has to do when he's you know, the top of the biggest nation in the United States, not in the United States, in the world. So I don't think Trump can ever do that. And whatever comes out of his mind is really to be detrimental to our safety, to our position in the world, uh, et cetera, everything that everybody said. I won't even go into the list. Well, thank, thank you for your call, Dottie. I would just sort of say also, I mean, it's kind of an overworked trope that the campaigns become predictors, particularly in the case of a pretty inexperienced politician, or in Trump's case, a non-experienced politician. Campaigns are att represent attempts to predict how somebody would run something, uh, how somebody would serve if they won the campaign. And, and in the case of Obama and Donald Trump, I think the other difference you see is, you know, Obama, one of the reasons he's pausing or going slowly is because he thinks all the time. He's, uh, he's a guy who really can see the moving parts of any situation very well. And he's been very well advised uh, from 2008 when he was running for the first time and, and all through his presidency. But he's also he's just a very good thinker in his own right and a very good parser of complicated situations. Trump isn't. I mean, Trump has various other gifts uh, and, and, as Ken Vogel said, charisma. But he's not necessarily a guy who can see all the moving parts of a campaign. And he doesn't seem to be able to act in his own behalf, which is why he keeps blurting out things that obscure possible detrimental uh, news cycles to Hillary Clinton uh, and 
get him in even more hot water. And so if you're going to use his campaign as a judgment as to how he would run the country, yeah, Dottie's right. He would blurt things out that could conceivably be very actionable and, uh, and difficult for this country. But, but also, there's just a question about whether this guy really can kind of understand a complex situation. He doesn't seem to understand this one very well. Uh, here's uh, David in Long Island. Hi, David. Hi, Colin. Uh, Colin, just like your opinion or just uh, your, your thoughts about uh, the remark uh, Trump made at the end of last week about calling for voluntary poll watchers. And that, that kind of got me thinking that that might be, uh, well, he's worried about, about fraud, but that would be intimidating and could be a form of voter suppression. I'm thinking uh, like a modern version of brown shirts, like, like guys might be wearing brown polo shirts, thugs outside and intimidating voters who, who want to vote in Pennsylvania and other maybe contested states. Right. So um, it's a great question. And, David, if you're uh, interested in this or anybody else is, Phil Bump, who we have on uh, the show a lot from The Washington Post, has a great piece about this um, this phenomenon. Because, yeah, Trump is not only calling for poll watchers and suggesting that there could be rampant uh, election fraud on Election Day, which they're just, you know, um, once again, as I said before, there's just kind of no evidence that that's ever been a real problem. Um, but he's not only calling for that, but he's sort of demanding that they try to get law enforcement involved in these situations. One thing that uh, Bump does in his piece that's pretty interesting is, you know, there's there's some law, there's some precedent about this, about what you can and can't do under these situations. And uh, tr- troubles can arise if you appear to be targeting certain areas. For example, if you really want a lot of heavy volunteer or otherwise poll scrutiny on districts that are notably minority in composition or stuff like that, that can uh, be an invitation to the Justice Department to come talk to you. So uh, it's a two-way street. But yeah, I mean, once again, I think this is the laying of the groundwork, uh, the laying of the argument uh, that there's something wrong with this outcome. Now, if it gets blown out, which is also a possibility, but if it gets blown out by double digits, it's really hard at that point to say, well, they stole the election. Um, and, and I will also say that Democrats have made similar arguments in 2002, excuse me, 2004. There were arguments about the or allegations about the Diebold voting machines, especially in Ohio, and, and what the president of Diebold may or may not have said about what he saw as his job in that particular election. And of course, 2000 will always rankle people uh, as a very disputed uh, election result and, and one that at least half the nation probably is never going to be entirely comfortable with. So, I mean, this thing slices both ways. But usually at the end of this process, whoever loses, whether it's John Kerry or Al Gore, you have to say something. You have to say, nope, that's it. It's over. This is the USA. You have a new president. It's not me. And the question I have is whether this guy could ever, ever do that. Here's Denise also. And I don't know which East Hampton you're in. Are you in East Hampton, Connecticut or East Hampton, Long Island? East Hampton, Connecticut. All right. Well, either East Hampton is fine with me. What's on your mind? Uh, I just, I've just been listening to Donald Trump's speeches. And I, I have to tell you, I'm a Hillary person. So I'm going to put my bias out there. But when he starts to rant on, I've noticed that before he tells his biggest lie, he mm-hmm. says, honestly, mm-hmm. or some variation of, you know, this, this is the truth, or honestly, folks, and stuff. And then he proceeds to repeat himself several times. And I think that that's the time when he shows the, you know, is, is telling the biggest story. It's kind of like a big storyteller. Um, and I wonder if, if 
that's something that you've noticed. I have a different theory about t- Trump's speech cadence. And uh, First of all, I want to say we have a limited amount of time left. It would great, be great to get a Trump supporter on the air or somebody who went to the Fairfield rally at Sacred Heart University. That would be so great. And the number is 860-275-7266, 860-275-7266. We'd like to hear from both sides here if we possibly can. I was going to write an article about this. I still may. This is the first time I've ever said this out loud to anybody, really. Is <laughs> I, I have developed this theory over the last few days, and I, I, I'm going to, I know that what I'm going to say is going to sound like a crackpot theory, but that a lot of what Donald Trump does and what he says and the way that he says it, and I'm only mentioning this because she uh, just brought up this whole thing about preceding sentences with the word honestly. My theory is that he's very, very heavily influenced by Don Rickles. Uh, and specifically the album Hello, Dummy, which would have come out, I think, uh, he, I think he would have been 20 uh, when that album came out. His, his actual cadence, and I started to think about it with the Second Amendment voters line, because it's exactly the rhythm that Don Rickles would use. And Don Rickles obviously was a famous insult comic who, in fact, trafficked in a lot of the kinds of negative imageries uh, about minorities that Donald Trump also traffics in. So, But that's not what I'm saying right now, although we could break that off and say that also could be a Rosetta Stone uh, for looking at the Donald Trump campaign. But I actually mean the rhythm of what he says and the way he punctuates things uh, orally. When he's talking, he says uh, things in a rhythm that I happen to believe. I'm going to write a piece about this that is very heavily influenced by uh, Don Rickles. You heard it here first. Uh, all right. So, uh, well, where should I go now? We've got a lot of calls coming in. I apologize to anybody we don't get to. Ooh, that's kind of a noisy line there, John. I might actually, since I can pick and choose, I'll go to Dave in West Hartford. Hi, take, Dave. You're on the air. Yeah, take me, please. Okay. Uh, I think they ought to change the name of the party that uh, Trump's running for to the Trump party because he's really uh, – uh, embraced by the people that the uh, Republican Party has been trying to attract for the last 20 or so years. Um, well, I don't yeah, we'll catch on. Well, I think I think there's a group of people that maybe they would have liked to have had who were less likely voters. Um, uh, Claire Malone of 538 recently um, reported on an internal memo where they were basically talking about how part of Trump's strategy. This is an internal Trump campaign memo talking about part of his strategy is to get the kind of people who don't vote in elections to vote away. The problem is that there are an awful lot of Republicans who do vote in elections who don't see things that way. The kinds of candidates they've gotten behind, for the most part, have not engaged in that kind of rhetoric. Sure, you can find some uh, examples of, of maybe where that's happened. But, you know, you think about a party that ran people like John McCain and Mitt Romney. Uh, you know, that's sort of not this is not who the party has been. And I don't think it's who the party really wants to be. I, I think the expense, the Faustian bargain of getting those other voters is is probably not worth it to the Republican establishment. All right. We have to stop here. I wish we could take more calls. Look at all those people calling in. I'm so sorry. We'll do open phones again really soon. The